Hello, I'm Pete Raby, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. Today, I'm joined by Elisa Sue Lynch, a Henry Crown Fellow with the Aspen Institute and former executive at J&J and Google. Elisa now serves on multiple boards, including Pomonox, The Honest Company, and the American Ballet Theatre. Elisa, it's great to be speaking with you today. Again, let's maybe start at that really obvious place. Pursuing your childhood dream of becoming a professional dancer, to have then worked in some of the biggest names in in technology and healthcare. Could you maybe give us a, a bit of a start about how that journey has all transpired? Yeah, sure. So I never thought I would end up being where I am today, having started with my love for dancing. So the story goes that I fell in love with ballet at the age of three uh, when my parents took me to see my first ballet performance. And so we were sitting in the audience, the lights come on the stage, the dancers start moving. And apparently I just jumped up out of my seat and ran into the aisle and started twirling around. And so my parents recognized, hmm, maybe maybe she wants to dance. And they started me in dance classes and I just fell in love. So dance became my first love in my life. And I studied throughout all my you know early years, got to be pretty good through high school, was performing a lot. And then um, auditioned for some ballet companies before going to college. And I didn't get into any of the big ballet companies, but my parents being Asian parents had also made me apply to many colleges, including, including Ivy Leagues. And I got into Princeton. So I had Princeton as my fallback and I ended up going to Princeton and thought I would never dance again. But I saw some of the student dance companies on campus and I was like, hey, that looks really fun. And by the way, Brooke Shields was in the student dance company um, when I first went to, then, to see them perform. She was at, attending Princeton. And I uh, decided to audition for the student dance company, got in, and really just loved learning new styles of dance because it wasn't all ballet. And that was really my first um, experience of really pushing myself to learn new things and learning that I actually could love those as well. And um, started taking classes at Princeton. You can't major in dance, but they had really excellent professors um, who would come from New York City, working professionals in the dance world to come teach classes at the university. And my senior year, my professor in dance said, you know, you really should think about dancing professionally. And I said, well, I tried to do that in ballet before. It didn't work out. And she said, no, 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 you should dance modern dance. Um, and she helped me out. She just said, come into the city. I'll help you navigate the audition process. You can stay at my apartment. And I did that in the spring of my senior year. And I got selected for a really big dance tour with the Jose Limon Dance Company. And, uh, that was a year long tour throughout Eastern Europe. So my very first gig out of college was a tour of Eastern Europe, America, South America. We went down to Argentina and, it was just uh, living my childhood dream. So it wasn't ballet, but it turned out to be modern dance, which was a better fit for me, um, I think, in the end. And I ended up doing that for six years. But as a professional dancer, like many professional athletes, you can't do it forever. And so I decided to retire at the age of, I think, maybe 27 and um, didn't know what I was going to do. And so I did what most people do who don't know what they want to do which is I went back and got an MBA. So I was living in New York City. I went to Columbia Business School. And straight out of business school, I got a job with Johnson & Johnson. And then I had, um, I'm going to fast forward, <laughs> but I had a 
amazing 20-year career with J&J. I started in classical brand management, marketing um, on iconic brands like Johnson's Baby and then Aveeno. And then I um, even moved to China. So I did my first international assignment abroad, living in China, working on the beauty brands, Neutrogena and Clean and Clear. And um, and then I decided to leave J&J. I left for two years. I went over to Valiant Pharmaceuticals as general manager of their consumer products division. Um, CeraVe was really the crown jewel in their portfolio that's since been acquired by L'Oreal. Um, but it was just a really great experience for me to learn that not everything is done the same way at different companies. Um, so at Valiant, it was much scrappier, more entrepreneurial. We were more of a challenger brand. And that was just great learning for me. But then J&J recruited me back. And we can talk about you know why I decided to go back later. But I decided to go back and then moved into the medical device businesses. And uh, so I moved into the healthcare side of the business and worked on diabetes care, worked on divestiture, moved over to medical devices in Europe, did my second international assignment when my husband and I became empty nesters, and then moved back to the US and decided to leave j and in 2020 at the start of the pandemic. Um, so in March, 2020, we moved back to the US to Kirkland, Washington, which is where the outbreak of COVID was in the US. Everything shut down. I'd left J&J, didn't know what I was going to do, but then somehow got a job at Google. And I joined Google in the fall and it was just such an amazing job. I loved it. I was learning. I was really feeling like I was making a huge impact. I'm still working in healthcare, but from a technology lens. And then was laid off by Google in the big tech layoffs last year, early last year, and had to regroup again. Um, And so now I am pursuing this portfolio career that you just mentioned of serving on boards. I'm doing some speaking and writing. And I actually just got on um, my second public board, The Honest Company. Um, So I'm really excited about that appointment that happened in December. And um, just really enjoying having a little bit more space and time in my life um, to think and to get back to things that I used to love doing, like writing. I was an English major at Princeton and have just gotten back to doing a lot lot of that and have actually started writing a book as well. So um, we can talk a little bit about that too. Absolutely. Yeah. Really interesting journey and very, very uniquely. So that's that's for sure. A bit of a, a slightly random one, but we're talking in January, 2024. Be really interested to know your take currently on that med tech, medical devices market. And, you know, as you say, that it, it had a real knock on, knock on impact to the tech, big technology US layoffs last year. I think it put a lot of doubt into the market as these things often tend to do and be the trendsetters. How would you say the lay of the land looks moving into 2024? Yeah. So I think the medical device industry in particular was very hard hit by the pandemic. So all elective surgeries, as you know, were delayed or canceled. And, and so that was a tough time. And I had um, joined the board of Pulmonics, which is a medical device company, while I was at Google and during the pandemic. And they certainly experienced a slowdown in sales and um, just, you know, hospitals at capacity. And um, I think since then, things have picked up for the medical device industry. Um, Things are definitely recovering. But then I was then in tech and um, then tech went through all their layoffs. So, you know, the story is that most of these tech companies really overhired during the pandemic. And we're getting a lot of pressure as their sales maybe 
were really high in the beginning of the pandemic, but then started to slow um, as the economy was recovering. And so we're facing a lot of pressure to reduce their costs. And so I was caught up in that, was unexpectedly laid off January last year. I just viewed it as a great opportunity because I've made so many different transitions in my career as this is another inflection point for me. And I really spent last year thinking about rebuilding or not rebuilding, but building this next chapter of my career and what I like to call um, choreographing my career, choreographing my next move. And so it's been really different. I remember January last year, I was, had just launched two products at Google. Um, we came back, was immediately jumping in, preparing for a national sales meeting. And it was just back-to-back meetings every single day. And this January was really different for me. So I had a wonderful vacation um, in Hawaii and got back. And now that I have this portfolio, um, it's really a portfolio of part-time work. And I'm much more in control of my schedule. I deliberately built in more space and flexibility because I want to be able to spend more time with family. My parents are older. Um, I want to do things that are interesting to me that are not necessarily as scheduled. So it's been much calmer for me um, in 2024 than it was in 2023. Why was it the right time to to take this definitely different career path, Elisa, right? Because ultimately, with that background and resume, very, very straightforward to go and get into another small, <laughs> emerging, mid-sized, large um, organization and kind of do what you've obviously done very successfully before, hence J&J hiring you back, hence Google hiring you as well. Why was then the right time? Yeah, I think for me, um, when I left j and I left j and in 2020 after, you know, in total a 20-year career with them. And I just felt like I was ready for something different. And at that point, I actually had been thinking about transitioning to this portfolio approach and serving on boards. And then when everything shut down and I was home in the summer, kind of wandering around the house <laughs> without as much to do. Um, I realized, okay, maybe I'm not ready. It's going to take some time to get on boards. Um, And when Google reached out, I was like, okay, this job is just amazing um, because I'd been really interested in getting into technology and working in health technology. And it just met all the criteria that I had written down for myself. And it also made me realize it might position me even better for boards taking on another operating role. So that was... um, why I decided to take that role. And it was great. I was, you know, I, I do think it positioned me better to get on boards, but I was working so hard as like so many people have done during the pandemic. It's just really hard to set, set boundaries when you're working remotely. And um, I'd set very ambitious goals for myself for launching these two new solutions in record time. And I think when the layoff um, happened, it just made me realize, oh, wow this is a chance to take a break um, because I had been going nonstop. I knew it wasn't sustainable. And because I had already, you know, three years prior started thinking about this portfolio career, it just felt right that like, okay, now is maybe the time for me to pursue this. And so um, that's really what I've been thinking a lot about and, you know, building for myself over this past year. And um, it does feel right. And I think once you take on a couple of boards, you know, like you have to think carefully about then stepping back into a full-time operating role because then you're going to be way too busy. So I think for now it's working for me. I'm enjoying it. 
but you know, I never say never. <laughs> um, and I do, I do get some reach outs about full-time roles, but I think I'm, I'm not ready to go back to that yet. Let's talk about that journey of the last year then, because I, I, I know that the listenership that we have at some stage, this is going to be highly relevant for a lot, if not all of the people listening. What lessons and learns have you had from that last year? Elise, if you were to go back again, what are the things that you wouldn't do? What are the things you had to maybe not learn the hard way? But yeah, how, how's that journey been a lesson so far? Yeah, I think in the beginning, um, you kind of get a little panicked about like, oh, no, like I don't have a job. And, you know, I, I did have a soft landing. You know, I got a, a you know, decent severance package. So I was able to take a couple of months off. And I think I knew that I should take that time off before jumping into something else. And that was advice that I got from a mentor of mine when I first left J&J, who told me, like, don't take the first thing that comes to you. Don't just jump into something new, because he had advised a lot of executives who had done that. And then maybe it wasn't the right opportunity for them. And a year later, they were looking for another opportunity. And then you know, then companies would say, well, why why did you only stay there for one year? Um, So I really took that to heart this time and said, you know, I have the luxury of taking a few months off to really think about what I want to do. I think I don't want to take another full-time role. I think I want to pursue this portfolio career. And so I allowed myself the time to pursue that path. And I did, I just really activated my network. So that was my other learning is, how important networks are. So because I had been so busy at Google, you know, I, I was delivering thought leadership out there around everything we were doing around AI and imaging and um, how technology could be used in healthcare. But I really wasn't actively nurturing my career network. And so when I left Google, that was the other thing I did is said, okay, if I want to get on another board, um, I know a lot of board positions come through networking. So I need to reactivate those board networks and I need to expand my network because I wasn't really connected into the search firms. And so I spent a lot of time up front um, doing what I call planting seeds. And so I just planted a lot of seeds. Um, I also joined Digital DX Ventures as um, an entrepreneur in residence because that was something I'd never done before. I hadn't really done early stage venture work, and I was curious about that. Um, so I also allowed myself to start learning new things uh, because I had the time. Um, I don't like to be bored. And, you know, of course, generative AI, chat GPT, all of that stuff was happening at the same time. And so I just really viewed it as an opportunity to learn. And it was tough at times because the board opportunities are hard to come by. I was in a number of searches where I didn't get it and was starting to feel, oh, this is not going to happen for me. And my goal was to get on another public board by the end of the year and uh, even two. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, by September, I was like, oh boy, um, maybe I need to recalibrate and this is going to take a lot longer than I thought it would. And then I, fortunately, I got into the search for the Honest Company and, and, um, and, and landed that board role, which is actually a perfect fit. And that's probably the other lesson. I'll go back to the first one that I shared, which is to wait for the right opportunity and not get discouraged that things aren't happening at the pace that you want them to be happening. Because if you planted the seeds, if you have clarity on what it is you're looking for, that right opportunity will find you. Um, 
because you've positioned yourself for that right opportunity. And I feel like that's what happened with me with, with boards and getting on, you know, the second board. I feel like it's just like, I'm so glad I didn't get one of the prior board roles because this one was so much of a better fit for me. And uh, have you found any of those seeds that you planted to be a more successful route? I'm sure it's going to be very individual, different people. Is it, have the search firms come up trumps? Has it been a situation where like, you know, your own networking and just reaching out has, has, has paid off more? It's been interesting because, um, you know, they always say like board opportunities most often come through your networks. And I was thinking of search firms as not being a network, but they are actually a network. And that, that was a big learning for me is that you need to, for me, I needed to be connected into both because I've also been doing a lot of research on Asian executives and how there is a leadership equity gap for Asian executives in corporate America, um, where we're just underrepresented at that C-suite level, underrepresented on boards. And um, one of the reasons is because we don't have a lot of those natural networks. We don't have a lot of those natural connections. And so for me, I had to be very proactive about expanding my networks, particularly with the search firms, because most often a search is still run by a search firm, but it's in combination with the directors, the CEOs, maybe the investors also recommending candidates to the search firm that's running the search. So um, to me, I learned it was about both and it was a lot of work. It was a lot of calls that I did, but I think both of those are important. And, and one other thing that I'll just share is also, it's important to really develop your value proposition. So, you know, you can't just network and say, hey, I want to get on a board. <laughs> you have to understand what is your brand? What's the unique value proposition that you bring to a board and be able to communicate that when you are having those conversations? And then also what I like to do is, is do a lot of, you know, I like to write, I like to speak, um, is to get out there and share my point of view um, on social or in articles. And that's also really helpful because that positions you better for boards. You mentioned there at the beginning in relation to American Asians not having natural networks. Can you just elaborate? Uh, I think that was a phrase you used. I, I, I might be slightly wrong there, but can you just elaborate a little bit more about what you mean by not not having having those compared to others? Yeah. So I'll just give an example. When I first left J&J and I started thinking about boards, um, I started talking to some people who serve on boards and they said, well, if you are not known. And, well, first of all, I just realized my whole network had been inside of J&J because it's such a huge multinational matrixed company. In order to move around and get different roles in J&J, you have to spend a lot of time doing internal networking, make sure that you're known to um, the people who make those decisions. And so when I left J&J, I realized I had no external network. All of my time had been so internally focused. And part of that was because I was happy at JJ. And, you know, I felt like I was able to develop my career within one company. But in getting on boards, if you're not known, um, sometimes, you know, boards want executives who bring credibility to their board. And that's why I mentioned the thought leadership. So maybe it's not just because I was Asian, but you know, I think this, a lot of people can probably relate that when you've worked for a big company for a long time, you don't focus necessarily externally on having an external network. But I think for Asians in particular, we tend to focus on if we do the work, do the work well, we will be recognized. 
And when it comes to boards, you really have to advocate more for yourself. You need to put yourself out there. And that can be a little bit uncomfortable when culturally we're taught to be humble. We're taught not to necessarily brag about ourselves. And so part of networking is getting a little bit more comfortable with talking about yourself and talking about what you can bring to the table. But doing that, you have to practice. You have to practice that and to get comfortable with doing it in a way that feels natural to you and not, you know, like bragging, because definitely like we don't like to brag. <laughs> now, it's a great point. And I, I, I mean, I really like the fact that someone of your level of experience and expertise, Elisa, is like, you know, it, it's the continual goal setting that you mentioned a few minutes ago. It's the getting out of your comfort zone. It's the thing to practice something over and over. It's the thing that I say to my three daughters repeatedly. I'm sure they're so bored by hearing it, but it's got that thing of like, you think you're going to get anywhere without practice, practice, practice. And it's so good to hear, you know, highly experienced leaders talking about the same thing. It's just a different chapter. So you've got to go about your learning all over again. I think it's a great resetting mindset. But I, I, I think that's some really, some really interesting insight there. Now, I, I appreciate the last year has been the starting of the difference between an exec to a board member, right? There's that clear difference. And it'd be really interesting to hear what differences that you found the most and have there been any that have surprised you between the difference between when you're in there doing it compared to advising? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the board's role is to provide strategic oversight. It's to help the executives see around corners, to bring your experience, to help them um, really ensure that the company's headed in the right direction, um, is thinking about risks that they may not be aware of, and obviously the fiduciary responsibility, but it is more of an oversight role. You are not the operator. And so the difference between the board and the executive leadership team is the executives are running the day-to-day operations of the company. And so I think there's really, the board I'm on um, that I've been on for a while, Pulmonix, has a really great relationship with the CEO and the leadership team. And we provide a lot of guidance to them, but they also welcome it. And off, sometimes they'll even welcome us to get hands-on. So I've met with their head of R&D and helped introduce them to different technology providers. But as a board member, you're not responsible for doing the work. You're responsible for overseeing the work and then helping to support the company to be successful and delivering that shareholder value. So that's, that's the biggest difference that I had to learn moving from an operating role um, to a board director role. And, you know, casting perhaps forward a a year or two, but with the experience you've had so far, what would your biggest commentary, advice, suggestions, thoughts on how to ensure board diversity? Because I don't think there's anyone that doesn't recognize that a diverse board is going to leave a company in far better stance than it will be without diversity. But it's a relatively easy thing to say in a sentence. It can be much harder to create without some proper planning and some proper strategy. What would you advocate there? Yeah, so 100% agree with you that everybody by now should know that more diversity at the leadership levels drives better business results. Um, So I think boards can improve diversity by really being deliberate about it. So they need to welcome diverse perspectives, and that includes diversity. Um, it can be diversity of age. It can be diversity of experience. Um, it can be racial diversity. But I think boards need to be deliberate about thinking about what is the right makeup 
for what the company needs. And best practice is really to do a capability assessment and develop a board matrix. So understanding who are your current board directors? What do they bring to the table? What are their experiences? And looking at the longer range strategic plan of the company, what are the capabilities we're going to need? Or what are the capabilities we need today that are not being met or covered by the board where there could be a risk? So cyber is a big focus right now. There's a lot of discussion around, do we need more technology, digital transformation, AI experts on the board? And there's a big debate about whether you need that specialist expertise or whether you need more general expertise. And I think in, you know, all boards are looking for general business sense. Um, so every board member needs to bring that. But then um, depending on how big the board is, some are often looking for those specialized expertise. But I think when it comes to like racial diversity as well, I think thinking about who is who is the population that you're trying to serve. So are you only trying to serve white people <laughs> or, you know, most often companies are not. So, you know, Asian Americans are the fastest growing consumer group in the U.S. Um, are you ensuring that you're bringing in that perspective if, you know, you are trying to grow your business quickly? And um, so I think developing that board matrix, looking at the capabilities thinking about the diverse backgrounds, and then really believing that welcoming those diverse perspectives will actually help you build a better board and help the company achieve their strategy. So I think that's the way that I would recommend approaching it. Yeah, I think that's excellent. I, I was going to ask about, and it's been um, of a few uh, industry things that I've been at in the last couple of years, Elisa, avoiding tokenism, because I think lots of people want it don't know how to do it and therefore it can be done for the right reasons but in the wrong way and i think the way that you said that there in relation to that capability understanding like what's what's your target area are you trying to serve and what's the background and strength and makeup of your team and if it's all the same then well we know where we want to get people from and too i think that's a really um a a really clean way of of looking at that for sure oh i was just going to add you know i think it becomes tokenism if the company and the board actually don't believe in bringing in diverse perspectives. So if they don't believe it, then it becomes, oh, we're just filling a seat because we have to. But I think if um, you know good boards and good companies are going to recognize that those diverse perspectives um, are needed and are going to be helpful for the company. And so then, then that can also overcome that feeling of tokenism because also as a board director, a diverse board director, um, I can smell that a mile away. So if you're talking to me and your first sentence is, oh, we're looking for an Asian director, like that's a watch out for me. Uh, you know, I would be thinking, okay, is this the right board for me? Are they really going to welcome my perspective in or are they just putting me in the seat because they have to? So, And, and, and that's the area I was looking forward to coming on to really because you've, you've seen it from both sides of the fence. The reality is there'll be people listening that are wanting to attract absolutely the right strongest board members for their established, growing organizations. And you've seen a lot of businesses looking for board members, some who really appeal, some that don't. You mentioned some very obvious examples about opening sentences, which I'd I'd imagine. But how do companies, how do CEOs, how do chairmen make sure that they're organization is positioning themselves in the most attractive way that they can be? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, I think like any job, 
you're looking for a number of different skill sets. So diversity may only be one of those attributes that um, is a consideration. But I think ensuring, as they're recruiting board directors, ensuring that they're starting with a diverse slate is step one. If you don't have a diverse slate, you're not going to find any diverse directors. Um, and I've been on uh, you know, a nonprofit board where uh, we were starting a search for a new director. And um, I asked the question. So as a board director, you know, I said, hey, like, what is the diversity of your slate? And we recognize, okay, actually, this isn't diverse. And so we broaden the net. Um, but I think as a company, also recognizing that diverse directors may not be in those C-suite roles. Um, so coming back to that topic that we talked about earlier, a lot of Asians are not making it to the C-suite. So there's data out there that there's only in the executive level uh, in corporations, in Fortune 1000 companies, only 3% are Asian executives versus there's 13% of the professional workforce is Asians. So there's something happening between middle management and getting up to the leadership level where Asians are not getting promoted. And so I think recognizing that diverse backgrounds are also valuable. So as a company recruiting, uh, wanting more diversity in their leadership ranks or on their board, recognizing that not everyone has to be a CEO or a CFO, um, because a lot of boards are, those are really valuable people to have on your board, but you know, you're not necessarily going to have as broad a pool of diverse candidates if you only look in the C-suite. Yeah, some great bits there. I, I, I mean, what advice would you give to young, you know, Asian professionals and leaders that want to get, want to go up that chain, but you know, maybe haven't so far? Was there anything in your experience, at least, that would be important for them to know? Yeah, I'll share a brief story where I was uh, promoted to manager at J&J and um, all the managers had to get a 360 degree review. And so I went through this process and the feedback was really surprising to me because I thought I'd been doing a great job. I'd gotten promoted. And the feedback was, you know, we don't feel like we really know you. Like you're all business. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay, what does that mean? And in working with a leadership coach, I was encouraged to share more about myself, about who I was. And I, I realized that I actually had never talked about the fact that I had been a professional dancer. I had deliberately not talked about that when I first started at J&J because I felt like that would not give me credibility with these former marketers or people coming from agencies, that being a professional dancer would not be respected. And so I didn't talk about that, even though that was a big part of who I was. And um, I also was unusual in that I had um, two young kids. I actually had my first baby in business school. I was pregnant with my second when I interviewed for J&J. And so I went out on maternity leave pretty quickly. So I had two young kids when everybody else at that entry-level brand manager position didn't have kids yet. And so I just didn't talk about it because it wasn't something I had in common with other people. But I realized that, you know, this is like something I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with like trying to balance having these young kids and working. And maybe that was why I was so businesslike because I was trying to be so efficient at work. <laughs> but when I started sharing more about myself, I became a better leader and I was better able to connect with people. I became more authentic. 
And my advice to Asian leaders coming up the ranks is, you know, don't just focus on the work. Don't just focus on working hard. Like to be an effective leader, you actually need to learn other skills. You need to develop your personality. You need to have a point of view. Don't just have, don't just have the right point of view. Like, you know, develop those critical thinking skills. And then the other thing is be willing to advocate for yourself because, you know, I, I've also learned like being a manager, the difference between employees that come in and say, Hey, I want to be considered for that role, or I want to get promoted in the next six months. And, um, and then, you know, the other employees who come in and say, Hey, like, am I doing okay? Like, did I do everything right? So, you have to be there because other people are advocating for themselves and you need to get more comfortable at doing that. Absolutely. I think some 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 brilliant stuff that you've covered there for sure. I think just just briefly before we get on to as always the the, the more quick fire questions at, at the end of the conversation, Elisa. Um you've gone through the hiring process at J and J. You've gone through the hiring process at Google. Uh we talk and advise clients continually in relation to how to make that process as sharp as it can be to attract the best people. And let's be honest, you know, the reason that the average ten, tenure at a US firm is, I think, little under a year is is indicative that hiring is an art. It is incredibly difficult. There's good ways to do it, bad ways to do it. There's famously some of the biggest companies in the world that have nine stage, 10 stage processes. It takes months and months and months. I think NASA's onboarding program takes 18 months from a recent book I've been reading. There's others that get it down much slicker and appreciate that attrition is going to be part of the process. Um, your experience of hiring processes and going through the board, uh, what does a good hiring process look like? And was there a huge difference between J&J and Google versus how smaller firms that you're now working with um, you know, go about it? And do you, you know, Are you yet of the opinion of what, of what the sweet spot looks like? Yeah, there's definitely a difference. Um, so at J&J, the process took a lot longer. So there were, it's just more, it's slower. Um, and there's a lot of interviews that you need to go through that are spread out. So I feel like unless you're being recruited, you know, from an MBA program where that might be a much faster process. But I felt like with j and I had to meet with all the right stakeholders and then they had to you know, collaborate and, and, you know, I've been on the hiring side as well and getting to consensus, um, they do cast a wide net. So it takes a long time at Google. It was very fast and technology enabled. So that's what I was saying is a big difference, particularly in the onboarding process. Um, I was super impressed with how quickly I was just set up with everything at Google. So I got my computer, I got my login. I um, Then there was onboarding uh, materials available for me. And then they, every month, I guess, because they were hiring so many people during the pandemic, every month there was, you know, a, a cohort of people onboarding. And so uh, we were able to meet people just really from different parts of the company and go through the same onboarding process. They were very clear on, starting with their cultural values and then learning the technologies and how to be successful at Google. Um, so I thought the onboarding process was really smooth and quick and technology enabled at Google. What I would say though, is after that, they kind of just let you go. <laughs> and I remember my manager uh, saying, you know, I was expecting like they call them OGSMs, the you know objectives for the year. I'm, I was expecting to get those from my manager at Google 
because that's how we would do it at J&J is the manager would provide that to the new employee um, or a new person moving into a role. And at Google, it was like, um, okay, so figure out the med tech strategy, figure out what we should be doing. And I really never developed written OGSMs. Maybe that's my fault, but uh, <laughs> that was that was different. That was unique. And probably that's just also the stage of company that it is. It's and and also the culture. It's it's more entrepreneurial, and you have a lot more autonomy um, to figure it out. And I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that, but it was a surprise to me. Absolutely, no. There's some great insight there, and I think you know the the speed is what we talk with clients about a lot. Unless you've got a name where a list of people queuing up to do it. If you're or someone that isn't quite as globally famous or, or is within a sector, I think speed and preciseness and all those things you mentioned is, is, is a big thing. So yeah, thank you for sharing that, Elisa. I, I, I don't know if it's in relation to the areas that we've been talking about today or just leadership in general or business or, or, or whatever, but I love asking people of the best book, podcast or movie that you'd recommend that you've taken some long lasting learns from. I don't know if anything jumps out. Yeah. So the first one that comes to mind, but I'm sure you've heard this many times. So I'm going to give you a second one. Um, the first one is the first 90 days. So I have relied on that book every single time I've done a transition. I'll kind of skim through it again and just remind myself. And it's been very effective for me in moving from role to role. But recently, I just listened to a podcast um, with Brene Brown, the Dare to Lead podcast, and it was with Adam Grant about his new book, Think Again. And it's about the power of knowing what you don't know. And I just love that concept. And he talks about um, essentially lifelong learning and remaining curious as a leader, because if we are not curious, we can tend to almost create an echo chamber of just being around people that agree with you. And he talks about how important it is to really welcome different perspectives. Um, so that that really resonated with me and I'd highly recommend it. I'm halfway through that one myself at the moment, Elisa. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it too. When uh, when Bill Gates is on the front talking about what a, what, a, what a read this must be when it's got some of the study examples in it. But yeah, I, I, I think it's a great, great read and I couldn't agree more. It really can't helps sharpen the inquisitive brain as to, wow, I hadn't thought about that recently. And and just the bits you can share with leaders within our organization, be like, wow, guys, I read this paragraph today. Check it out. Have a little read. And we've bought a few copies for our in-house library and there's a few that have been picked up already. So we're quite enjoying that, that's for sure. Um, but yeah, the podcast sounds great. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely check that out. So thank you for mentioning. Um, and, and from your journey so far, um, there's been so much in it, and this is a pretty brutal question, but it's a good one in some ways. If there's one learn that you want our listeners to take away from your journey in leadership so far, Elisa, what, what would that be? I think I'd like to impart that keep dreaming and dream big because you never know where your life is going to take you, where your career is going to take you, but you should love what you're doing. And that requires you to keep dreaming and going after what you want. So that would be my advice. Um, Elisa, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your journey and your, your learns with us today. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots that will resonate with the listeners and like me that's got pages of notes here of things that have been spiraling with me. They'll be taking away some valuable ideas. Thank you everyone for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please give a five-star rating and do share with others in your network. Elisa, thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much for having me.